This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Ahe Wu from Falls Church, Virginia. Ahe is a loyal listener to our podcast. She believes that studying history is crucial for anyone who wants to make a positive contribution to society. She says it's important to study presidential history specifically because of the president's role in shaping our country's underlying principles and values. Ahe also admires Presidents George Washington and Franklin Roosevelt because she sees them as strong leaders during times of crisis, especially during times of war. Thanks, Ahe, for all your support. And now, on to our episode. Our guest today is Merrill Eisenhower Atwater, and I'm very excited to have him as our guest. We just did a series, a two-parter on President Eisenhower, and uh, Merrill is the great-grandson of President Eisenhower, which is pretty pretty great that uh, I think you're probably the first relative of a president we've ever interviewed on this podcast, so this is a, this is a first. Uh, and you're also the CEO of People to People International. So, uh, Merrill, I just wanted to thank you for uh, joining us and uh, just sharing, you know, your your insights. Well, you know what? Thank you for having me. It's absolutely an honor to be on this uh, this podcast. This is uh, one of my first podcasts I've ever been on, to be honest with you. So, kind of kind of fun. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, first of all. Uh, you know, it, it it was great to study your great grandfather and learn about his background. Obviously, we focused on him as a president during the Cold War, but also uh, I I really like the idea of having relatives of a president on just because it's a reminder that well, presidents are people too. They have families like everyone else. They you know go through life just like everyone else. So. Uh, you know, I guess you probably have heard a lot of stories growing up and about President Eisenhower's background. And one of my favorite quotes of his is the the quote where he says, we were a poor family, but the glory of it was that we didn't, uh, the glory of America is that we didn't know about it. So what can you tell me about about Eisenhower's, just his family background and things that you've heard growing yeah. up? Absolutely. So, you know, we were just talking about going down I-70. You actually passed the presidential library out there in the middle of Kansas and Abilene. The, the thing is, is that you got to remember when Eisenhower was born. So when he was born, it was 1890. Um, he spent most of almost all except for three years of his childhood uh, in Abilene, Kansas, which is uh, a unique situation by itself. Right. Um Whenever he was younger, um, you had things like the Great Depression, you had, you know, the, the Dust Bowl, but a lot of that stuff happened after he left left his house. The thing is, back then, uh, rail was king, cattle was king uh, out in the West, and things were a little bit different. His dad worked on the rail, uh, rail company and also worked at a creamery. Uh, his mom was a stay-at-home mom. The interesting thing about Ida Eisenhower, his mother, is that she actually came uh, all the way from Virginia, all the way across the country by herself uh, to Kansas, where she went to Lecompton and actually ended up getting uh, a degree, uh, which is unusual, college degree, in fact, which is extremely uh, rare for women, especially at that age. But, you know, just to be uh, by herself, having no other support and doing it herself is pretty phenomenal. 
David and her met there. And when you're talking about poor, uh, there's a saying that we say in, in, in Kansas is that this person was from the wrong side of the tracks. And literally there's a track in the middle of Abilene that divides the poor side with the wealthy side. And it is uh, a, an absolute divisible uh, line. Um, when he was growing up, he used to do auditing jobs uh, throughout his uh, high school and, and, and earlier time. Everything from planting gardens uh, to go sell uh, extra food at the um, downtown to, to make ends meet to feeding. Uh, his mother used to make it, you know, seven loaves of breads twice a week uh, in order to, to feed all the kids. Uh, in addition to that, um, wrong side of the tracks also meant uh, a lot of discrimination because you were poor. And it was interesting because there's this place called the Steely Mansion out there where he wasn't even allowed on the porch uh, because he was so poor. Um, and it was it was kind of interesting to see and learn about that as I was growing up as well. Um, but really, back then, when you're talking about why it's so unique and different, the, the Midwestern values, especially back then and even today, is a little different than the rest of the um, rest of the country. Things are a little slower out here. Uh, we take our time, we get things done. Our words are bond. You know, there's not a lot of uh, tomfoolery that happens, but the most important things is, is the values that are instilled by, um, by his mother, really, not, her, not his father. His father was working on the rail, which means he went all over the country back and forth through his line. Um, but that, the, the, his mother actually is by far one of the greatest unwritten women in history. In fact, um, one time, uh, it was 1945, uh, she, was, she somehow got the Mother of the Year Award by this group that oppressed people that, that did that. And she said, are you, how, you know, how are you so you know, impressed with your son? And she goes, which one? Because they all ended up being you know, multimillionaires or they ended up being very successful in their fields. One with, uh, the, the one that did the worst was a pharmacist, for goodness sakes. Um, one of his brothers started as a, as a janitor at Commerce Bank, which is a huge bank out here, and uh, worked his way up all the way to senior vice president. And all, all of that was instilled by the educational value that the mother who got a college degree by herself as a woman in the early 1900s um, actually ended up putting all those things together and making a, a life very feasible for them. It, it's very interesting because uh, you read when you read about Eisenhower's life and his his brothers and they seem to have uh, a very fascinating relationship. There were were there four or five of them, I believe. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Five. And I, I know that I had been reading that one of them was actually roommates with President Truman <laughs> in their youth. <laughs> That's true. That's right. true. Yeah, absolutely. Which Does is it, kind of interesting if you think about it, especially later sure. on the the dynamics between the uh, President Truman and and Ike as well. It's kind of interesting to see those dynamics that happen uh, later on. Yeah, and I know that one uh, of one one funny thing also about that is is that we actually are friends with the Trumans today. Oh, great! Uh, Clifton Clifton Truman is a good friend of ours, and uh, we see him three or four times a year. Oh, that's wonderful! Not fun. Yeah, and so uh, I mean, th- there's been much. Re- written about the relationship between Eisenhower and Truman. Uh, did they know each other going back to when the bro- his brother was, uh, you know, roommates with him? Well, you got to remember back then, Ike would have been probably just a, a very junior officer in the army. So there's no way that they would have known each other. Sure. Uh, but Truman's relationship with Ike stemmed all the way from the, the really falling out was um, really whenever Truman dropped the atomic weapons uh, and then eventually uh, during Korea, my grandfather was in Korea um, and he was an author on the front lines. He actually ended up getting a bronze star 
Um, but Truman actually pulled him away from his men's to come to the inauguration. And that was one of the devastating moments of their relationship. Oh, wow. Okay. I've always heard about it being uh, their relationship going south with regards to uh, when McCarthy was criticizing George Marshall and Truman was upset that Eisenhower didn't, uh, you know, come to his defense and, and so on. So that's very interesting. Right. right. Well, see, so if, if you think of it that way, that, that that's one way to put it. But really, you got to remember that Ike never voted one time in the, in the, until he voted for himself. And the reason why is because his commander in chief was his boss and he knew it and he did not care one way or the other. Maybe he didn't stay. He stayed out of the politics of that particular situation. But for the most part, the the difference is, is that Ike, whenever he was elected in 52, um, Truman didn't care. He brought he brought John home anyways. And that was kind of an interesting concept by itself. Right. And one thing that kept coming up was Eisenhower's poker prowess. And that's yeah. something that I, I had read about. And it, it really adds a new layer. And it, it really goes well with later on where people talk about his nuclear brinksmanship and was he bluffing? Was he not bluffing? Uh, yeah. What, what can you, what have you heard about his po- poker prowess basically? It, that's actually kind of interesting. So he learned how to play poker from a, a very, very poor person. Uh, but he was poor at the time too. So it didn't really matter. He was a, a mountain man. A guy, his name was Tom, I believe, or Bob Davis, excuse me. And uh, well, what would end up happening is, is that Ike was a pretty literate person at the time, continued to be all throughout his whole entire life. But this mountain man would come and beat into his head, actually how to play poker, right? And it's kind of interesting whenever you start thinking about that, because um, it really starts talking about the strategic value of, of the thought process of doing it. So poker, most people play poker. When they think of poker, they think of it as a game of chance. You get a card, you either have a good card or a bad card, and you bet on that card. Well, he learned then that he was absolutely able to understand the probabilities of what was going on based on the odds. And so what it does is it actually changes the way that you think a little bit, right? So just like any other education, whenever you learn something new, you start thinking a different way. And this was no different. And, and in fact, uh, I did, I saw that question earlier and I asked uh, my mom, I said, is it possible that he won uh, Mimi's engagement ring, for example, uh, through poker, poker playing? And she said, it's, it's very possible. It's very possible that that happened. Uh, I know for a fact that he won a jewelry box, a very nice jewelry box, in fact, uh, that my aunt has to this day, which is kind of interesting. Wow. Did he continue to play poker throughout his, you know, his older age? I know that uh, he basically, his superiors kind of told him to stop fleecing his, his co- co- colleagues, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, but, that, you know, so Ike was kind of interesting. So if, I, if I'm going to take it back just a little further before we start talking about that, Ike never saw combat during his whole entire time as a military officer. In World War I, he was actually pulled into uh, different camps for training. So he would train different groups because of his ability to think exactly like what we're talking about. So with the poker and all those different things. But more importantly is that is that Ike was always a you know an athlete. He was always a star. He was always someone that was working towards that. But he actually thought many, many times that he was going to be moved out of um, out of the military, you know, kicked out because he was not promotable in different ways. 
Um, but poker itself is something that stayed with him for as long as I can, you know, you can remember. Um, I believe he probably even was playing poker with Arnold Palmer, you know, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if he was on top of the White House when he was grilling out playing poker in a, you know, game of cards with his friends. That's great. If if they make another Eisenhower movie, I think they have to add that element to it. Absolutely. You, know, you got to remember, it, it's the American dream, right? So think about it for a second. You have you have someone that literally is dirt poor that doesn't have any means whatsoever in the early turn of the century. So we the, the next president of the United States could be listening to your podcast right now. Let's hope so. Right. Uh, because be we want to inspire people all the time. That's that's the goal. So he he literally pulled himself up out of the dirt and the muck on the wrong side of the tracks um, through education, being a great military leader, being a good person and becoming the, the 34th president of the United States. That is literally, you could not write a book about it. And I don't think there's been a movie yet that has actually done it justice because it is an American story. It is what we believe that we can all accomplish. And I hope we never lose that faith. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me was how there were times in Eisenhower's life where he experienced a great deal of disappointment and very relatable disappointment. Here's this young man who, when World War I breaks out, he wants to be part of the action and he has to stay home. And then it seems in other times his his career stagnates, but it, it's like a setup for for what's coming next. And I think that's something that so many people can relate to. Absolutely. A great example. It's I, sometimes I give a speech whenever I talk about Ike, I talk about overcoming adversity. So when he was eight years old, he ended up cutting his right leg and contracting blood poisoning. The doctor wanted to amputate. It didn't amputate. Could have lost his career. He applied for Annapolis, didn't get into Annapolis because he was too old. He went ahead and, and applied to West Point, got in barely, you know, graduated middle of his class, went into uh, the, you know, went into the army, finishing up. Um, couldn't get into command school because he had no, no actual combat experience. And um, General Fox back then said, well, why don't you switch your MOS to quartermaster? And so he switched over. He started as a tank commander, went to infantry, um, then moved over into quartermaster, went to command school, ended up uh, placing first in his class, you know, in both, both aspects of it, and then went back into infantry again. And so it's, it's kind of interesting when you talk about our careers and how we have to do things and shift and shape. Um, it's no different from a, you know, a farm kid from Abilene, Kansas. Right. Now, what do you think about Eisenhower's background and his family life? Uh, how did that influence his leadership style throughout his career? So Midwesterners, just in general, um, I always say that we are, we are measured people. We, uh, we tend to be very uh, thoughtful whenever we do things. Sometimes we have tempers. He, Ike surely had a temper. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, but for the most part, I think that, that his background, his, his, his importance to education and doing the right thing and making sure that you had the ideas and thought through things fully before you execute them, I think was one of those things that, that really shaped his career. You have Patton saying, you know, we need to go all the way into Russia. You have, you have um, Montgomery sitting there saying, oh, gosh, you know, I want to be the first. And Ike's sitting there saying, guys, we need to work together. This is how we do it. This is the plan. This is the measurement. You know, um, World War II uh, during D-Day, um, he actually wrote a letter to my great-grandmother uh, saying that, you know, if anything goes wrong, it is my fault. He takes all responsibility on this, takes everything off everybody else. Um, in fact, it was, it was, it was actually 
um, signed wrong. The date was wrong because he had so much pressure going on to him. And uh, eventually, you know, on, on June 5th, postponed, June 6th, it happened. And it was an absolute amazing, amazing accomplishment when you think about it. But more importantly is that one of my favorite quotes that he says is that um, plans mean nothing, but planning means everything. And so the thought process of what will happen with this, what will happen with that, the fact that they made a fake harbor uh, out of boats and, and pontoons and all of these things so that you could get supplies into France, all of those things played a major role. But all of that stuff stems from not only understanding what fair values are, having empathy, understanding what, what the next step would be. And I think that carried over into his presidency as well. Right. Now, when you look at World War II, you you – you read about Patton, you read about MacArthur and all the great military figures of that time. Uh, Bradley, I mean, the, you know, the list goes on the, the class that the stars fell on. And as they say, and yet it was Eisenhower. And of course we have to say general Marshall. And yet it was Eisenhower who became the president among all of them. What about him was, was different from all the rest? That's a great question. I, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. Um, the truth is, is that besides Bradley, think about the egos and the sense of I'm a warrior, I am important that went on during World War II. You have, you have everything that was happening in, in the Japanese front uh, where no matter what was happening, I, I, I was the one that was in, important. Uh, Ike was called uh, the best damn aide ever by MacArthur. Um, but never gave him the credit of what he, what he was able to do, his strategies. When the war started in 1939, Ike was a colonel. Um, you know, by 1941, he was a two-star, uh, actually planning out what was going to happen in Japan and then was moved into the front, uh, the, the, um, the European theater, which is interesting. All of those things happened by themselves, not because Ike was – the guy going out in the battlefield, but because he was the guy that was thinking through what would happen if something else happened. And to be honest with you, that's exactly what you do in a poker game. <laughs> I mean, right. I know that sounds funny, but it, it really is. It goes back to your thought process, how you're learning through things. One thing is, is that one of his first assignments after he left, left West Point, uh, kind of like um, uh, Olds, um, which was the last last person to, to be a triple ace, um, Robin Olds. Uh, he actually became a uh, a coach uh, for his his local his local uh, base uh, for football. I mean, all of this stuff has to do with strategy. Everybody was understood that he had the ability to think through the problems all the way through. And again, coming back to the presidency, it does follow him all the way through where he was able to do that. In addition to that, he believed that it didn't matter who got credit as long as the job got done. And we talk about that all the time and hyperphalies, but the truth is, is that's, that's how you get successful in life in general, is that you don't care about where the credit goes. You just care if the job gets done. And being a leader is making sure other people feel important uh, and people are respected. And most importantly, and this is something we forget today, is being heard. Because as much as we think about our own egos, it doesn't matter being in a leadership position, as long as you, if you have people that, you're, that hear you and you're hearing them, you may not agree with what, what the decision is, but at least you've been heard, your point has been made, and then the next step can be taken. Right. And I, I think that that's one of those qualities that, uh, as far as what you just said, not 
wanting the credit, but wanting the job done. That's one of those qualities that people want in a leader, but aren't guaranteed in a leader because so many people in politics want the credit. And, and to be honest with you, again, if he wasn't from Kansas, I don't think he would have had the same same type of thought process. It was a different it's a different world there, you know, back then, especially in Kansas. Very, very humble background. He knows he knows that people need to be heard. This is where this is his roots. You know, his mother was uh, was was very religious. It was taught to him. But the most important thing is that he really believed that everybody opinion mattered and that we we as individuals can accomplish some things. But us as a group can accomplish great things. Right. And one thing interesting about Eisenhower, you have a, a, a figure who was who had worked and collaborated with just incredible figures of that time mentioned, you know, MacArthur uh, mentioned Marshall and also with other presidents, uh, you know, getting to know. I mean, it was FDR who put him to the task of D-Day, and then yeah. Truman and and. Uh, Kennedy and Nixon, uh, what were those relationships like? And I, I specifically am very curious about your take on his relationship with Nixon. There's been so sure. much written about that. And for you, it's it's for your family. It's a matter of family since the Eisenhower and Nixon families are married, uh, are, are related through marriage. So, right. Right. So, so, so Dick almost got replaced. President Nixon almost got replaced as vice president during, during the first term, but I decided not to, and for whatever reason, um, that there is own, it doesn't matter. Um, but over the time, oh, you know, over over the time that I was in office as president of the United States, um, Vice President Nixon at the time was an incredible instrument of getting things done. Uh, whenever I was, for example, in the hospital, uh, you know, at Walter Reed. Uh, get, having a heart attack in 1955 was the first time they tried to pass the Interstate uh, Highway Act, right, and defense, um, which is our national highway system that we have currently. And it failed. It failed uh, because they believed it was a state's rights issue, a Tenth Amendment issue. Didn't matter if they quoted the Interstate Commerce Clause. It was it was a state's issue, state's problem. Which at that time it took 14 days to get across the country. That's not very fast mobilization. Uh, if we're invaded on one side or the other, that's a huge problem. In fact, right. um, so Nixon in, in 1956, I suffered a massive heart attack, um, and for for good reason. Uh, I think that some of the stuff you covered in some of your other podcasts, uh, lots of pressure going on that was behind the scenes. Um, but it was kind of interesting because it was it was actually Vice President Nixon at the time that had all the governors in town for the council of the governors and convinced them that it was important to have their congressmen and senators vote for a bill like this. So Nixon played a major role in some of the policies that happened on the Eisenhower administration, not to mention the fact that whenever Nixon later on became president, you know, we opened up China to us. Uh, he ended the Vietnam war. He had, he was actually the last president to have a balanced budget. Um, anybody can argue with me with that, but I can show you the numbers, um, you know, uh, but it is actually what ended up happening. Um, the relationship was was it was interesting uh, and di the dynamics were interesting. Uh, but I think at the end, they became very, very good friends, very close, uh, close enough where David married my Aunt Julie, um, right. you know, the 70s. So that was it's pretty interesting whenever you go down those paths and see see where those things go. Right. Absolutely. I think uh, it, it makes for such a fascinating contrast. You have the hero of World War II, and then you have this young, up-and-coming, uh, controversial senator, 
who has you know quite a track record of i mean he was an attack dog that's the phrase that i used um and one thing people talk about how how nixon was the first kind of modern vice president who had significant responsibilities so much that he was debating khrushchev and yet they don't give the credit to eisenhower for being kind of the first modern president to really empower his vice president Right. Well, there's, you know, Eisenhower's administration was the president of first. I mean, there's lots of things we can go down the list at some point in time if you want to. But the accomplishments that happened under the Eisenhower administration are pretty remarkable. Um, we still feel them today. And Nixon had a major role in that. Uh, Nixon was absolutely doing things like debating Khrushchev, was absolutely uh, involved in the politics and policies that were going on 100 percent. I once watched a documentary on Nixon and it talked about the famous slash infamous checkers speech. And there, the, the point was uh, that the narrator had made was that it was almost as if, uh, so the assumption was that Nixon would step down from the ticket, but he took the decision out of anyone's hands, including Eisenhower's, and asked the, the, you know, the viewers to telegram, write letters to the Republican Party to keep him on the ticket. And it's, it's this example of Nixon being shrewd. Is that true from what you've heard? And how did that all factor into their relationship? So, so when I was in uh, high school, I did a report on Nixon, you know, because I figured it would be pretty easy to do. And actually, it was actually very hard to do. Uh, you know, my, my aunt was, was helpful, but for the most part, it was one of those things where um, y- you have to understand the man's dynamics and understand who he is and where it's from. Um, President Nixon was a man with great ambition, but more importantly is he was very good at what he was doing and very, very, very smart. Always, probably always the smartest guy in the room. Um, When he was in high school, he was the president of his high school, Uh, you know, um, um, school, what is that called? What's the word I'm looking for? When he was in high school, he, uh, the student body. So student when, body, when he was right. in high school, he was the president of the student body. When he was in college, he was the president of the student body. When he went to Duke, he was the president of the student body. When he went to Duke Law, he was the president of the student body. The man only succeeded at what he did. And there's a reason for that. When you calculate, you think through things, you don't get to where you were at that age unless you're very good at what you do. And um, that speech is just a great example of um, someone that wanted to be on the ticket understood that this was a historical moment. We were in the middle of one of the biggest um, non-battle battles that we've ever been. And we're talking the difference between fighting for freedom, uh, fighting for our republic, for fighting for a democracy type aspect of life, and fighting for communism and the idea of socialism and that the government can tell you how you should spend your money and do what you're doing and what jobs to have. That is what was actually going on in Russia. The fact that Stalin killed more people than Hitler did is something that was known. We forget that. Mm-hmm. We forget that communism is one of the things, the leading causes of death of any political movement in the history of the world. I don't care what your social view is. That is factual. And, um, you know, that, that's what we were at. That is the actual definition of what we have been fighting against since that time. And even today, we still fight against it. I mean, we pretend like we don't, but we do. Um, <laughs> right, but right. The, it's the, the idea that we as, as people have inalienable rights, uh, you know, that, that the government cannot tell us that we are free. We are free automatically. And then you have a group of people that are oppressing those rights and one that are fighting to keep you free. 
Right, that's right. An important thing. So why would you want to leave that situation, especially with someone like Khrushchev in office? Because you got to remember the other side. Khrushchev was also on a crusade of, of righteousness as well, because whenever you're in the other side, taking the other's point of view, is that you're trying to ensure that people have equal equality. And you're making sure that you have that. The problem with socialism and communism, my opinion, uh, is throughout history, uh, a very few, a very few people end up with the power, right? Marxist communism is is great on paper, but once you implement it, someone has to implement it, and that person has the power. That's a problem, right? right. You know? the cult of personality and so on and so Absolutely. forth. Absolutely. The, the thing is, is if everybody was equal and everybody was the same and everybody thought the same way, it would work fine. The problem is, is that there's always one that doesn't think the same way. Right. And then right. power is cultivated right. and center massed. Right. Exactly. And then oppression happens. Anyways, right. that's a different conversation for a different day, I'm sure. 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 Well, but those issues were obviously what was going on that, that formed Absolutely. what Eisenhower was trying to do and was the cold war consensus was that this is what we had to stop. And it's fascinating because Truman, he comes into office, uh, you know, end of World War II, and then the Cold War is this brand new war. And Eisenhower was really the first president that uh, had to deal with the Cold War right from the start of his administration. So he is, you know, people, Dean Acheson's book, President Creation, really could apply to that whole era, including Eisenhower. And of course, him and and Truman, I think, were such a big part of what they were doing was creating U.S. leadership in that effort. And so in what ways do you think Eisenhower was really a, a different version of containment from his predecessor? How did he change the paradigm of that, especially since he had the uh, solarium meetings and everything? Well, see, the, the interesting thing about the Eisenhower administration is, is number one, if you think about it by itself, you think about when he left office, he was considered the moral compass of the of the country, right? Uh, he was considered a do nothing president. He, you know, apparently he played more golf uh, than he than he spent time in office, right? How, how many times do we hear that today? Even uh, it's kind of interesting to sure. see. Uh, but in all fairness, he is in the World Golf Hall of Fame. So I mean, so yes, he did he did play a lot of golf. Um, but the thing is, is that you have to remember is that. When he left office, he was number he was ranked number twenty seven, right, or so, roughly. Uh, at the time, there were thirty four presidents, so he was ranked very low as one of the worst presidents ever to lead, you know, to lead the country. Which, which is, and I'm I'm not saying this just because you're his grand grandson, a great grandson, but it, it's pretty ridiculous that that he was ranked that low. I mean, yeah. you know, but anyways. But you yeah. got to remember that nobody really understood what was going on because he was playing golf and having meetings and working through working through everybody working through every other aspect of things. Uh, one time he said, you know what, don't worry about McCarthy uh, because he's going to hang himself. And a year later he did, you know, he knew what was going on. He knew the aspects of things because he was calculated. He thought about it. He knew where was, where, where people were going. He was a student of history and that plays a major role. The Eisenhower administration is is very unique in shaping American uh, the American ability of superpower, quote unquote. I hate that term because there's we're not a superpower. We are a very powerful country, yes, but we can't degrade other. Anyways, that's a different conversation. Again, a different conversation. But the importance is is that at the time during the Cold War we had a huge problem, right? So we had 
One, we had the idea of communism, socialism, the uh, the gross expansion of of um, of radical radical oppression, and I don't mean that in a negative way, uh, but that's what it was. You have Poland being taken back over. You have people not giving up countries. You have invasions uh, through Western Europe uh, to certain points where there were battle lines drawn, just not executed. You have the Warsaw Pact, uh, and then and then you know you have you have NATO. So think about that for just a second. Today we still we still have some of those same problems. The players are a little different, but the ideas are still the same. Instead of calling it a cold war, we call it a cyber war. We call it something else. But there's still tension that goes on that stems all the way back, all the way back uh, to to War One um, and World War Two. And China becoming a superpower is part of World War Two and the aftermath of what happened with the vacuum of power with Russia collapsing, the Soviet Union collapsing into uh, what it currently is. It's, it's very fascinating when you take a holistic look. Right, right. One thing that, that's fascinating to me, I mean, every few years, there's always some sort of confrontation with another country of some sort. And people always talk about this specter of, you know, nor- uh, tensions with North, North Korea ratcheting up and, uh, you know, and we, we're worried about their nuclear capability. And it, it happens every now and then. Uh, and there are all these fears that, oh, the president is provoking this and that. And, and you look at the Eisenhower years, and here was a president that was not afraid to walk t- to the brink, right to the brink. Uh, and it, it's funny because when people talk about a current president, you know, and this has been going on for more than, you know, the last four years. It's been going on for a while. But whenever there's a uh, a crisis People talk about, oh, this president, they're, they're bringing us into war and all that. And Eisenhower has this reputation for being this wise president and, and, a, a, and very much an earned reputation. And yet he was willing maybe to risk more than all the rest of these guys. So, you know, how what made him willing to do that? And uh, I think what what can we learn about how presidents handle crises from what he did? That's a great question. Think about it. Think about it this way. When you're in World War II and you're going through and you're conquering back Europe and you're seeing cities at 90 percent, 95 percent Warsaw, for example, 95 percent destruction, you're liberating concentration camps where millions of people were killed. You're coming across those things. You already seen the worst of what humanity has to offer. And the fact that Truman did drop not one, but two atomic weapons and the only only person to do that in history. Um, The rest of the world should have feared us at that point in time. Um, We know Russia did. You know, we know that 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 China did. We know that we we understood that. But the reality is, is that it was a real threat to us as well. Whenever you're talking about the Bay of Pigs, you're talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, you're talking about in May, May 1960, the, the U-2 spy plane being shot down. All of these things play a major role. Dulles says that we threatened, uh, we threatened North Korea and China if they didn't knock off their, their expansion, that we would, we would uh, soon eradicate them with nuclear weapons. I mean, these are all things that people talk about. Truth is, is that, you know, Ronald Reagan said it too, but you have peace through strength. Uh, that's what some people say. But at the same time, he was doing that. He was making sure that we as 
Americans and not just Americans, but also Europeans and also Latin Americans and, and other people around the world were safe. Um, he talked about peace. He talked about atoms for peace. You know, you're talking about the IAEA. You know, you're talking about speeches where he says that every every bomb made, every bullet made, every uh, you know warship launched is essentially a theft of people that are in poverty that need food. So you have different different messages going on. One hand, you're preaching, "Hey, I will do this if I have to, but don't force me because I want to do this over here." I'm a peaceful man. I want to, I've seen the worst. I'm not afraid of it. I know what it looks like, but we can do better together. And that's the thing that, that people forget. People to People International, for example, the organization I work for, was started in 1956 in the U.S. State Department. Um, the idea that you and I, whoever's listening to this podcast, have the ability to sit down and reason with each other and take government out of it. Right. Because right. governments always have an agenda. Governments, victors of war, make boundaries while people do not. So it's something to consider, something to remember is that once you break down those walls, those stereotypes, those types of things, um, very quickly you become friends. Um, in 1962, we were sending people into um, occupied Germany. Um, and and, and uh, we, we still to this day go to Cuba. Um, we've been invited to North Korea. We spent time with, go down the list of places that we were in. I was in the Gaza Strip. Uh, last year uh, in November, whenever they launched the day after I left there, they launched a hundred rockets into 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 Jerusalem. I mean, my mom's been in bombings. These are things that we're fighting against because of the tyranny of people. Instead of understanding things, we're choosing to take the opposite route, right? Right. And so right. That's, that's where Eisenhower was. Yes, I'll, I, I remember one time. I think, if if I'm not mistaken. Um, he threatened Khrushchev of putting back on the military uniform and, and leading forces into Russia. I think that that was a conversation they actually had. So, yeah, no, he, he wasn't afraid of he wasn't afraid of a fight, but he preferred not to have one. Um, again, his mother was a huge pacifist. And so was he, for the most part, walking contradiction uh, of, of that side. But but absolute true. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I think when you bring up that he saw the worst in World War Two, that's that's literally true. And I, I've read about how when he saw the Holocaust, essentially, when he saw the concentration camps, he wanted to, and there's a quote of him saying very clearly, we want this to be known. We didn't want anyone to be able to deny that this had happened. In fact, he looked at my, my grandfather, John was his aide right after he got over. And he said, John, you need to take as many pictures as you possibly can, because one day people are going to say this never happened. Right, right. And people today say it didn't happen, but we have albums and albums and albums showing it did. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? 
These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I do want to talk more about PTPI since uh, it's a big part of his legacy. Uh, what was Eisenhower like as a husband and as a as a father? Uh, you know, you you kind of you hear about these figures, but you, you can know them on the resume, but not necessarily personally. What what was he like, just from what you've heard? Um, well, <laughs> I, my mom gets asked this question quite a bit, and um, you know, I get asked about that with with Nixon as well, and. And, uh, you know, other people. But the thing is, you don't know any different. Right. Um, my mom always says that there's three hats that I wore. He wore the general hat when he needed to. He wore the president hat when he needed to. But he always had the grandfather hat on uh, whenever whenever he was you know, with them. Uh, in fact, uh, in Gettysburg, which was the Eisenhower estate back then, um, People used to come in and, and land at Gettysburg through the helicopters to call Khrushchev and, you know, name a world leader. They would land there and all the grandchildren, all four grandchildren, my grandfather, uh, my grandmother would all go over uh, to to the farm and have dinner. Um, it was just a family affair with some guy that spoke a different language. No big deal. You know, <laughs> and, and that's kind of how we remember it. I remember one story my mom, my mother told me was uh, there was this 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 mechanical bird that kind of. Um, moved around, right? And you wind it up and it moved around and all of this. And it was really, according to her at the time, she was about five years old. Remember, she was in the White House. It was the most amazing thing that ever happened, right? Most amazing thing. Hmm. And she'd wind up the bird and then she broke it. She broke it. And she was so worried that she would disappoint everybody. And so she hit it. And um, later on that night, she, she went and told um, her dad that she, she, she broke the bird and she was very sad and very, very upset and went over to her grandfather and, because it was his grandfather's and, and gave it to him and said, I'm so sorry I broke this. And he goes, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Here's another one. You know, and that, that's the reality of who the man was. You know, there was this one time, another great story is when she was about six years old, there was this, this you remember those Tonka truck type things? Oh, sure. You know, right, right. Yeah. But those things actually started coming out in the, the late 50s, early 60s. And all the kids would, would go around the circle in the, in the White House outside going around it. And they never let uh, my mom do it because my mom was way too young at the time. And uh, one time she, she had this opportunity. Everybody was doing something else, but she had her own 
uh, service, the diaper, quote unquote, diaper detail were the people that took care of her of uh, Secret Service. And she got in the car and she started going. And then all of a sudden there was this foot that came up and stopped her and said, what are you doing, young lady? You're speeding. You know, I need to write you a ticket. So I wrote a ticket and gave it to her. And she was really upset. Because there's two things that we don't do in the Eisenhower household, according to my mom. One, we don't lie. And two, we don't break the law. And she got a ticket for speeding. And she, she knew she was in trouble, in the deepest trouble. And so she, threat, she threaded all day long, going back and forth. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And she ended up having to go and tell her granddad that she spoke. And so it says, is there anything, is there anything I can do? I broke the law. I'm so sorry. You know, I got a speeding ticket. He looked at it and goes, hmm, what am I going to do with this? He goes, I'll, I'll tell you what, you can't drive again for another 11 years. And that was the punishment, right? So that, that grandfather, it was just a grandfather. Of course, she couldn't drive again because she was five. She couldn't drive again for 11 years because she would be 16, of course. Right, yeah. Yeah. And she was all like, oh, man, that's I'm funny. sorry. You know, all shucks. You know, and that's, that's the reality of how things were. And it's, it's just you don't know the difference. The family life, it was, it was just a good, good husband loyal, loyal to his family, loyal to the country. Um, but the man never lost his roots when he was, uh, later on when he retired from being president of the United States, he used to put on a wig and go show his cattle that he had at the Gettysburg farm. And, uh, you know, a couple of times, I think he won a blue ribbon too. I'm not sure how, but you know, huh. they did. and it was a bad wig and they knew who he was. Of course he won the blue ribbon, right? right. Uh, so let's see, that's just who he was. Love to be outdoors, love to fish, love to hunt. Um, you know, big, big Midwestern ideas. Right. Now, his farewell address is one of the most famous American documents. It's as you know, one of the most famous uh, farewell addresses of all time. It's really his in Washington's that get talked about. It's quoted a lot by people on the right, by people on the left. What do people get right? And what do people get wrong about the farewell address? Oh, boy. And I ask because, you know, people like to appropriate history for their own purposes often. And with the feral justice, no different. So so today, if you think about it, and I'll, I'll get back to that in just a second. But I have to give background so I can give you give you my answer properly. But today, if you think about it for two seconds, the United States is a completely different world than it was even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20, especially 50, 60, 70 years ago. Right. Um. Mike was with the idea that he had was that we we could be the beacon of hope in humanity. Um, you got to remember that under the Eisenhower administration, there were so many things that happened that were mon mon monumental that that had never happened in the history of of mankind. One, we started the NASA program where we were shooting rockets up into space um, to compete with Russia, and not to mention the fact that we needed to do it anyways. Number two, uh, we, we started the interstate system. You know, in 1919, when he went on his convoy for the first time across the country, it took him 62 days. By the time he left office, the project was underway where now it's the greatest economic engine in the history of the world. Also the largest infrastructure project in the history of the world as well. Um, the United States, that's, that's not quite right anymore. Um, but whenever you start thinking about it for two seconds, that was a 40 year project. So it got appropriated in, in, in um, 1956, but the last allocation of that was in 1996. It wasn't a fast spend. It was a long-term project that was paid for by taxpayers' money, right? How did he do it? The excise tax that we talked about earlier, 
they raised the excise tax in the United States from one penny to two. So he doubled the excise tax in order to pay for the infrastructure project. Something that's unheard of today, right? He was able to expand the government by forming different agencies, new agencies, combining agencies. But at the same time, he was able to maintain fiscal responsibility. Operating in the black, last president to operate in the black, had seven balanced budgets. Unbelievable. That's unheard of today. Could you imagine if today we actually could balance a budget? If we could get together along uh, well enough to compromise, to have a good discussion, how much good we could do for the world? And that's what he did. He brought people to the table that were able to talk through problems. He figured that if you met somebody and you agreed with them 80% of the time, you probably could get something done. Um, that's, that's stuff that he learned throughout his whole entire life, all the way back to, to being a leader of the football team, being a captain at West Point, you know, getting through, graduating, that bringing camaraderie together, um, allowing people to work together was a way to solve problems. And he had the first civil rights bill passed um, since reconstruction, for example. Would have been better, would have been much better if it wasn't for LBJ, but that's a different conversation for a different day. We can talk about that, um, you know, because I'm not going to beat up on, on LBJ, but that, that was one of those things where um, they were willing to go a lot further. But it was it's, the important thing is, is that it happened, right? He was the last president to send, the, you know, active army into a school, into a state to enforce federal laws. That's, that's unheard of today. Could you imagine if Trump said, hey, I'm sending the 101 to Portland? What would happen? I mean, well, we already know it's not good, right? It's unbelievable how how these things go. And you can agree with Trump or not agree with Trump, doesn't matter to me, but it was a different time. The accomplishments that you can list are um, enormous, but there was also failures too. I mean, there's lots of failures that happened along the way, but the biggest thing is, is that you have to remember the idea that we can compromise to work together to get something done and accomplished is the most important thing. and we were able to do that in the, under the Eisenhower administration. And I say we as the American people were able to do that. We had one of the best economies in the history of our country. We continued to grow. Technology expanded. People started getting TVs in their house. Doesn't sound like a big deal now, but that's a huge deal back then. Cars were coming more readily available. You have a second industrial revolution. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, a continuation of Eisenhower's policies under the next, or excuse me, under the Kennedy administration, where you have more movement in the civil rights as- aspect, you have more NASA, and then the Bay of Pigs, other things that have happened. Um, some of that was part of Eisenhower's policy as well, but also at the same time, some of that was not. We, you know, if you want to ask a direct question on that, I'm happy to answer it to the best of my ability. Sure, yeah. Now, one thing I, I want to ask also is, and I've always been curious about this, is when you are part of a family that is as prominent as the Eisenhower family, uh, when you're growing up, when does the talk happen? When does the talk happen where it's like, <laughs> You know, your your great-grandfather was the leader of the free world at one point, was the most important person on earth. And also, that's not normal. Like, not because, you know, when you're growing up, your world is your world. And you just assume that, at least when I was growing up, you know, I just assume, well, this is the way all families are, right? But at what age does that, you know, become aware? Do you become aware you know, wow, my great grandfather was a really big deal. And this is a very unique, special thing. And my, my, my classmates, their great grandfather wasn't president of the United States. How and how do you get aware? How do you understand that in a way that, uh, you know, you kind of have that self awareness of how special that is? 
I don't think you ever really do. I mean, being honest, I, I am who I am. Um, I, I, I believe that everybody's pretty much equal and it doesn't really matter to me one way or the other. Um, the thing is, is it's not, it's not what you, who you're related to. It's what you do with what you're doing. Uh, people to people international, we're a 501c3 humanitarian world peace organization that does cultural exchange. We do things like HIV awareness in Tanzania for 150,000 at risk women and children for HIV. We give them we the same chapter. We we provide sewing machines so that they can learn a trade, so they don't have to do prostitution. And in other places, we put in water, uh, clean water, hand washing stations. We do living libraries so we can educate people. We we work and support all different types of things around the world to to try to make the world a better place. Not to mention the fact that we get to also then travel to those places and meet the people that we're helping. I mean, that by itself is something that's amazing because you realize for two seconds that it doesn't matter that my great grandfather was President Eisenhower. What matters is what we're doing about it. What are we doing today? And today, more than ever, we need to make sure we have civility in this world. We need to make sure that we're leaving it a better place. Unfortunately for you and I, um, we've messed it up enough. We can only teach people to how to fix it and try to fix it. And every day you have an opportunity to do that. Every single day, you have an opportunity to make the world a better place. And, and it's not only your responsibility as a person, as a human being, but you need to make sure you're tolerant, teach people that tolerance is a good thing. Make sure that you're not only doing that, but help people when you can. Could you imagine if everybody in the world did one act of kindness a day? I mean, seven billion acts of kindness. If they did it for 100 days, it would be 700 billion acts of kindness. If they did it for 200 days, it'd be 1.4 trillion acts of kindness. Do you think the world would be a better place if we had 1.4 trillion acts of kindness over the next 200 days? I think so. And that's, that's the legacy that I was teaching, is that we, were, we have a responsibility, an inherent responsibility, especially being from this country, to try to make the world a better place, continue to work hard, to strive to make a peaceful resolution. People say peace is impossible. I say peace is possible if you understand people and understanding people is understanding culture, being tolerant, understanding who they are, what they are, what they need, and just acting in a way that's a manner that respects that. And I think if you can do that, you can be friends with anybody. And if I can be friends with you, I can certainly promote peace through that. Mm-hmm. I, it sounds like a lot of the values that President Eisenhower used in his leadership has influenced you in your approach in in your position with ptpi i I would say my mom has but sure sure. Uh, but but no it's 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 obviously it's not mutually exclusive (laughs) right right, right, yeah yeah. no but the thing is is that if you just stop for a second just stop for just a second there's madness going on all around us right now We're, we're talking about what's happening in this country but we forget about the fact that there's one of the largest hiv uh, problems going on in Tanzania. I'm just using that as an example because I, I alluded to it earlier. Um, if everybody in the United States gave 10 bucks to Tanzania for HIV awareness, we might be able to help eradicate that problem going on there. We, we, we get so bogged down in our own personal views and as individuals, this includes me, by the way, um, that we forget to take a step back and say, you know what, that could be that person's worst day they've ever had in their whole entire life. And we can work together to make that a better day for them. And all you got to do sometimes is open a door and that's it. It's really simple. And if I can do that, you can do it. Then everybody can do it. 
you know, it's walk 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 a mile in someone else's shoes. Well, I'm never going to be able to do that unless I take time to understand where that where they're coming from. Right. Now, uh, my last question. So fairly or unfairly, presidents are often remembered for a specific thing. Absolutely. Lincoln, Civil War, Washington, father of the country. Uh, What do you think Eisenhower would like to have been remembered for? Golf. 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 Definitely golf. Uh, No, no, no. See, the thing is, is that you got to remember in his administration, he gave credit to everybody else. Um, I, he wasn't that type of person. Um, I think history, history is, is being rewritten and written more and more about him is realizing, especially as the documents have been, uh, you know, um, opening up all the classified documents that he was able, he was like a duck under, you know, duck in the water. He was able to, um, absolutely 100%, um, stay calm, have that calm front. But at the same time, there was a whole entire world um, that was that was on fire, just like today. You know, um, he was able to contain communism. He was able to balance the budget. Those are all things that that people will remind him of. You know, that people will remember him by. But I honestly think that if you asked him directly, he would say, "I want to be remembered for being a great grand, you know, a great grandfather and a great husband." And someone that was able to pull himself up uh, from Abilene, Kansas, and become president of the United States. Because one of the things in one of his speeches, one of my favorite lines he ever said was, "One of the proudest things that I've ever done, I can honestly say, is that I'm from Abilene, Kansas." He he was always a Midwesterner, and I think if he can do it, I think the message should be everybody can do it. It doesn't matter who you are and where you come from, you can do it. And I think that's what he would be wanted to be remembered by. Well. Merrill, thank you so much. Merrill Atwater, PTPI, great grandson of, of our 34th president. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Just real fast, uh, you know, anytime you can, uh, go on ptpi.org. Look at our website, 60, 65 years almost. I'm the fourth Eisenhower to run it. Please get on. We do work on donations, so please feel free to, to donate. Uh, come by, you know, see us, call me. I don't care. I'll answer the phone. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, thank you for, for being on. We Absolutely. appreciate Absolutely. And let's talk soon, okay? Yes. Thank you thank so you. much. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Please visit evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.